Welcome back to Cthulhu Light Show, your one-stop shop for news you've already heard and opinions you don't need. On today's episode, we'll be discussing something that I saw on Red Letter Media, like last week. Uh, it's it's uh, the Vast of Night. This is not half in the bag, but I am Dakota. And I am Brian. Uh, and this movie was uh, directed by Andrew Patterson, starring Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz. And yes... We are going to try and ride Red Letter Media's coattails again. It works well the first time. Oh, yeah. Totally. <clears throat> All right. Let's see. Um, should, we, should we do, like, what every other podcast does that, re- that reviews movies and bring up, like, the Rotten Tomatoes scores and, like, Letterboxd and shit? I mean, if you want to. Because IMDb, out of 14 ish thousand reviews gets a 6.7 out of 10 um rotten tomatoes won't let me see the actual scores unless i turn my ad blocker off so fuck them i'm sure it's i'm sure it's fresh let me check oh yeah 92 percent oh it is okay audience score of 63 percent yeah okay i was gonna say i was sure that there would be a huge disconnect between critic scores and audience scores. That's still not bad for an audience score, but... It's not. I honestly expected it to be lower. So this movie is like an indie film turned quote-unquote Amazon original. Um, I believe Patterson, the director, was like a, a full-time like commercial director and producer, and he funneled his own money into this project. It was the first movie he ever did. And uh, it was mostly, like, an indie darling, and then Amazon scooped it up to have, like, some free Prime content. But so it is kind of an artsy movie, and I think a lot of the appeal to critics comes in the form of, like, technical stuff. Like, Dakota and I will probably get into this more later, but there's a lot of really, like, interesting shooting and editing. But it is a super slow-paced movie, so I can see how general audiences would be, like, bored out of their minds. Yeah, I uh, actually had to, I was going to watch it, like, the night before recording, but I ended up watching it, like, an hour before, because I about fell asleep the first time I sat down to watch this, Yeah. unfortunately. I don't really blame you, honestly. It's, oh god, people say, like, methodic, like, slow burn kind mm-hmm. of storytelling, this is the slowest of slow burn Nothing picks up in this movie until about an hour in. And it's a 90-minute yeah. movie. I mean, I would say, like, the thing that blew me away was, like, the conflict is not even introduced until around the, like, 21-minute mark. And up until that, it's all, like, establishing setting and characters for, like, 20 minutes. And, like, showing off really cool film and editing techniques which is all fine and good, but like as a pure piece of entertainment, um, I do think that that beginning could have st- stood to have been cut down significantly. Uh, for for my part, I will say that I actually have watched the movie twice. I I didn't intend to watch it once or twice. I think I even said to Dakota that I had enjoyed it the first time, but I didn't know if I would ever be able to watch it again. But that was about a week ago, and. When it came time to record, I was worried I didn't actually remember it well enough, so I did watch it again. Surprisingly, I did not hate it the second time. I thought that I would be bored out of my skull, like, once I knew how everything progressed and what happened in the end. But I still did more or less enjoy it, although I had more moments of, like, going on my phone or texting people or whatever. The the first time I watched it, I was pretty much glued to the screen. So... It's not completely devoid of rewatch value, but it's not, like, gripping edge-of-your-seat entertainment by any means. Right. Um, and I think, uh, speaking on the rewatchability, actually, I think that this movie uh, would do well to watch multiple times. It's one of those mm-hmm. where you gotta, the first time it's just seeing it, the second time mm-hmm. you gotta view it. Or some, some yeah. dumb shit like that. <laughs> like it's something a redditor would say. It's a movie that pays itself off upon rewatching. Yeah, I will say, I had more questions 
after my second viewing, and not in a bad way. Like, I think I noticed a lot of little details that made me kind of reconsider my initial viewing of the movie. Like, I rethought certain character motivations. Um, I also noticed that the conflict is foreshadowed more in the introduction than I thought it was. At one point, uh, I noticed a light flickering on my first viewing, but on my repeat viewing, I noticed it actually flickers a couple of times, which is like, ooh, so exciting. But um, just the... My point is just there's lots of little details that I picked up on the second time. Before we get too deep into it, I do want to say just like big fat spoiler warning. I do think this is the kind of movie where if you're interested in seeing it, you should do it knowing as little as possible. Like a brief summary synopsis would just be, it is a period piece set in the 50s in which two teenagers through kind of unconventional means gradually become aware of like a ufo incident in their area but beyond that i don't want to give a ton away um, it's not even a super twisty turny movie i just thought that i can see how knowing exactly what happens might make it a slightly less intriguing watch yeah i i would dare say that because uh, when i watched the half in the bag video mm-hmm you know, instead of, like, recording episode, because it's been, what, like, three weeks since the last one came out? Uh, two, I think. Something like that. You know, it turns out I was just doing work. But at the time, I was just slacking off to watch Red Letter Media. Mm-hmm. Um, actually ended up skipping the spoilers that they had. And I'm glad that I did, because, it, like Brian said, if I had gone to this movie knowing what would have happened, uh, I either would have skipped the first 45 minutes... Or I would have just turned it off, more likely. See, I don't necessarily feel that strongly. I think that... I think slow burns can be really effective. But I think the person who's sitting down to watching it needs to be prepared to do the work. Like, if I had not known to expect a slow burn, I probably would have fallen asleep. Since we're going to get into spoiler stuff now, the minute the conflict was actually introduced, I was very interested I mean, all the stuff with the, like, 50s setting was very fun, but the the first, like, panicked emergency call that Faye gets on the switchboard, the woman talking about how she's going to run down to the cellar, there's something on her land, and it's all, like, cutting out, and she's frantic. I thought that was very unsettling, and I really liked that. And, Yes, there's a lot of space between moments like that, but I do think it is all building towards one kind of feeling of, like, general unease, which I think is interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I got the impression you didn't really like the Switchboard stuff. It was all right. Yeah. The more that they got into it, uh, the, the more use to it I got, I guess, is the best way to describe it. It's an interesting way to drive your narrative, mm-hmm. being the person that gets to route all the phone calls in town. Yeah, it, it is an interesting way to do it. Um, it almost is a perfect... Like, the weird thing is, I almost think this movie would have made like a great audio drama, like on the radio or on a podcast, because so much of it is just hearing stuff. Yeah, yeah, this this would have worked wonderfully as like... As, like, an audio drama. Not to take anything away from, like, the camera work or anything, because there are some pristine shots in this movie. Oh, it's excellent. I mean, there's, like, five or six just, like, 10, 15-minute long, like, single-take long shots. Um, there's one point where this poor, diligent cam- cameraman has to, like, run all over the, the neighborhood. And there's one point where the camera... I, I looked up behind-the-scenes stuff. The camera is on a go-kart that they like rented from a local boy and they go all through the neighborhood on the go-kart the cameraman gets off the go-kart gets goes into the gymnasium where the basketball game is happening he goes all the way through the gym goes up the bleachers to the window on the other side of the gym and like seamlessly hands the camera down to a guy who is still on the go-kart who has already driven around the building and the shot just continues like there's not a single cut 
and I, th- those cameramen must be so, so skilled. I, I can't even imagine doing that. So yeah, it is beautifully filmed, but I guess what I'm getting at is like, another kind of barrier to entry for this movie might not just be that it's very slow. Uh, it's also kind of a passive experience. The two main characters, Faye is a switchboard operator, so she like is a phone operator. And then Everett, that's his name, right? Everett? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Everett is like a, a disc jockey at the local radio station. So she is receiving calls that are like suspicious or creepy. And then she wires one or two interviews through the radio station so that Everett can interview them on the radio station. And they don't really become active until like the last like 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Like a lot of the movie is just them being told stuff by other people. And they're, they're so conscious of this, the filmmakers, that particularly when Billy's story is being told, there are a number of times where the visual just cuts out entirely and you just have to sit in the dark and listen as if it were an audio drama. For any other movie, I don't, I don't know why they would include that, but something yeah. about this movie makes it work. It, yeah. th- This movie really plays with the medium of both audio and video and it, it all works. Yeah. Uh, it kind of gives you a sitting around the campfire feel, um, like listening to ghost stories. I mean, Dakota, you sh- you should speak to this a little bit too because you tried it as well. But for me, I I was excited to watch this movie and I wanted to put myself in kind of a particular headspace uh, for when I did watch it. So I made sure to watch it late at night and I made sure there were no lights on. So I was just sitting in the dark just listening i was i was watching through headphones so i was just like everything was happening right in my ear um so like wikipedia describes this as a science fiction mystery film which i guess is the best descriptor you could come up with um i actually think it has some kind of light horror elements like it's not explicitly scary but it's extremely unsettling um, and the the tone is very creepy in places. It is, especially once the plot kicks off. Yeah, I I felt I felt the movie almost go into like a horror movie style. Because mm-hmm. like like we had said, there's the, there's these like these very long, very convoluted uh, shots, you know, one take scenes. But also the movie mixes things up where there's crazy like handheld cam, uh, short mm-hmm. disjointed, uh, shots that get thrown in as well. Yeah, they do. Um, and they do a lot of like rapid fire editing cuts, like intense moments. It'll just cut all over the place in very quick succession. Um, which I think can also be kind of jarring or unnerving. Um, like I would, I don't think I would describe this to somebody as a, ho- like a straight horror film. Um, but like in in literary criticism, when you talk about horror novels or short stories, there's a distinction between horror and terror. Where like horror is the more severe one, where it's like jump out of your seat, jump scare, scary, or like gory, stomach turning, grotesque stuff. And then terror is more low key. It's about like atmosphere and mood. It's more unsettling and creepy more existentially frightening oftentimes than in your face scary um and i would say although nobody would know what i meant i would maybe say the vast of night is like a terror film because it's definitely trying to creep you out it's just it's there's it's not it doesn't fit the bill of a modern horror movie i don't think no it doesn't um, Rotten Tomatoes calls it an engrossing sci-fi thriller. I wouldn't I call think, it a thriller. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, slow as shit. There's, it's there's really nothing, boring. There's place. nothing thrilling about this movie <laughs> until like the last thirty minutes. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, you can't hammer home how slow that slow burn is. 
Yeah, that's that's why I say it is unsettling above all else, because it's just about getting one little creepy piece of a creepy puzzle at a time. I'll also say, um, so again, spoilers, the movie ends with Faye and Everett and Faye's, like, baby sister getting abducted by aliens. Um, oh, they got abducted? Oh, yeah. Okay, the way I saw it, oh, hey, uh, spoilers, by the way, guys, like, uh, if you hadn't tuned out before, yeah, we're doing spoilers now. The way I saw the ending, um, I thought they just gotten vaporized. Oh, really? Like, I thought they were straight up dead. Well, the thing that's interesting, because, again, like, you're getting little itty-bitty pieces of the puzzle that are all, like, culminating to one thing. So, like, the thing that was interesting to me was the old woman, whose name I can't remember, her story was about her son disappearing. And she talks about how she's found, she followed his footprints and they just up and disappeared. And the final shots of the movie or of Faye and Everett, is the camera leading up this trail of their footprints, and then the footprints suddenly stop, and the only thing that's left is the uh, recorder. The tape recorder. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. All right. So my assumption was that they were taken up and the tape recorder was left behind. That's what it so seems think, like, yeah. Yeah, so I think you're supposed, you're kind of meant to think, well... They're gone, but they have all of the evidence on tape, and somebody's gonna find that. But, I mean, would anybody believe it? Probably not. So, Dakota and I need to talk about the fact that part of the reason we were so excited to watch this movie is that it scratches a very weird and specific niche itch in our brains. Um... Like, Dakota and I both really like alien abduction stories, and um, in particular, these, like, period piece, like, 50s, 60s aesthetic um, stories from, like, before UFO, like, mania was a thing, like, when this was still a relatively new phenomenon. Yes, um, give, give, me, give, give me some of that Betty and Barney Hill shit. Right, exactly. Give me, give me some of that Betty and Dreesen shit. Yeah, like... Because I think we both are in agreement that there is something, like, existentially terrifying about alien abduction stories, but they've become so just completely widespread, so generalized in, like, the pop culture consciousness that all of the elements that are frightening about alien abduction stories now seem, like, cheesy or laughable. Yeah, uh, it's like, all it's, it's all generic now. Everything Yeah. Everything has really already been done mm-hmm. in in the sense of like your alien abduction uh, yeah. pieces. Like for instance, like flying saucers are considered extremely cliché um and like kind of gaudy nowadays. Yeah. But I do think there is something inherently creepy or frightening about a UFO. Um, and the, the thing that's supposed to be frightening about it is that it looks completely unlike any earthcraft and it like it can like move with extreme precision in the air without any visible means of propulsion. You know, like it defies our understanding of the laws of physics, at least on the surface. Um, there's that great Douglas Adams line that I think I may have made fun of in the past where he, in Hitchhiker's Guide, he describes alien ships as hovering in the air exactly like bricks don't. Um, <laughs> and that's such, like, a, like a smarmy, like, line. I, I love it, but... Such a good line. But it's also conveying to you that, like, this is, like, a hunk of... Seeming, like, this, this appears like a hunk of, like, inanimate material, but it's just, like, gravity just doesn't touch it. Um, so like, and I think that's part of what's creepy about flying saucers, but people are so desensitized to that stuff that they don't really think about it that way anymore. Um, and so Dakota and I really like like fifties era abduction stories, but they're really hard to do well nowadays. So we were really excited to try this out. I was excited because I saw that they were going for a very mild horror element, and I do think alien abduction stories are, are very frightening. Oh, yeah, that, that shit's terrifying. Yeah. So, 
I think what, what I'm trying to say long way around is one of the things that makes this movie work so well is the setting and the time period. Because if I remember correctly, this movie takes place after Roswell, but before Roswell was really, had really like blown up in the public consciousness. And it was before Betty and Barney Hill, I believe. I think. I've got, I've got the, the trivia section about the Fast and IMDb page pulled up. Just okay. because some of the, some of the shit I, I was lurking through while you were uh, rambling, which thank you for giving me time to actually do some some extra research on this. Um, yeah, man. Some some of the stuff behind this is, is it's fun little like just extra stuff I want to bring up. Um, and according to the to the director, and this is it says from a New York Times article. Uh, but again, I'm getting this through the IMDb trivia page, so you know take that what you will. Uh, the film takes place in November 1958. Okay. And, uh, let me see if I can do a quick Google Foo real quick. Betty and Barney Hill, I believe, was 50... Oh, 61. My bad. Okay. So, it was before, uh, aliens had gotten into the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, yeah, Betty, Betty and Barney Hill were not the first alien abduction story, I don't believe, but they were the one that really captured the public imagination. Yeah, they were um, the first widespread one. So the thing, one of the things that's so fascinating about this movie to me is all of these people have to articulate the like incredibly generic beats of an alien abduction story, but they don't actually know what any of it is. Yeah, so like, that, that's what makes it work, is that, yeah, yes, it is. it's it's all of these generic, you know, oh, it's a flying saucer, here come the greys, mm-hmm. all that bullshit, but yeah. to them, it's, there's something hanging in the sky. Yeah. Some, something's well, out there o- over over our small town. Yeah. Now, there and there's some great moments, like, in the car, somebody asks Faye to describe what her cousin saw in the sky because people are literally just running around saying there's something in the sky and all she says is is round it was hiding in the clouds and you can already picture it in your mind because it's something you've seen in science fiction a thousand times but hearing it described with such like confusion and awe it's just really really uncommon and really interesting and, like, you know, naturally, like, Everett leaps to, like, oh, it's the commies, the Soviets are, are up to no good, or... He calls them Ruskies. Yes, he sure does. So, yeah, I think that element really works. I'll also say I don't think the movie would work nearly as well. I think one of the things that the movie does right is the actual moment of abduction is not the important part. That's the final beat. Yeah. It's, it is kind of a creepy mystery story and the the thrill of it is seeing them unfold all of these clues and coming to this realization that you've already come to basically and seeing how it impacts them as people who are completely unaware of like the alien abduction phenomenon so like so many abduction movies think that the interesting part of the story begins when the person is abducted and what happens next. But the fact that you never know what happens to any of the abductees makes it even more creepy. Like the old woman's son disappeared when he was like, I think she said nine and she's like a like shriveled old woman now and she hasn't seen him since. And like somehow she's so sure that the aliens still have him, but like, do they? Probably not. Probably not. Most most people, and, and again, this is going off of you know, quote unquote, actual alien abduction stories. Like yeah, most people are dropped off uh, to them hours later, but it could be days, weeks later. Well, and the other thing is, like the motivations of the aliens are completely unknown. Like people just disappear, and that's the end of that. You know, they could be totally benevolent. They could, you know, they could be giving their these their captives wonderful new lives and whisking them off to the stars. They could be experimenting on them to gain new knowledge. They could be eating them or whatever. Like, we don't know and it doesn't matter because all that matters is they're taking people and we'll never know why. It's like the movie reinforces this great sense of powerlessness 
that is so important to like existential terror i think yeah i i didn't even think about that it, it, it this movie really builds on existential terror yeah like, uh, it really does yeah yeah like something's in the sky we don't know what it is we don't know what they want we don't know if anyone's yeah. in there but what we do know is something hanging out over the sky and it's weird and i want to know more about it yeah well and that last final beat too is they see one ufo and then a massive one like a mothership flies over their head and they see many ufos so that just like deepen you know that just throws more questions onto the pile and it just reinforces that sense of helplessness even further yeah because um, that point once you see that it's like oh man is this an invasion yeah uh, well well it's basically like oh so earth is not at the wheel yeah we're like, just along like, for the ride like even if the governments of the world are aware of this and want to do something about it they they can't you know um, we are in a zoo, basically. Now, did you have any, like, other, like, kind of side questions about the movie? Like, did anything leave you, like, questioning elements of the movie? At, like, a plot level? Um, on a plot level, not really. Everything seems pretty well contained, and mm -hmm. the questions they want answered get answered. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no there's no real loose ends beyond the obvious what happened to Faye and Everett. Yeah. I think that I had a couple of more minor mysteries that mostly stemmed from the old woman. Although there's a couple of other questions like why when they broadcast that signal through the radio station did the power get shut off? Like, was that interpreted as hostility were they just trying to like silence interference? You know, because they were they were playing the aliens' own signal back to them. And this is just from like what weird outside knowledge I have. Like usually, how these things work is like right before an abduction takes place or like a sighting or things like that. Mm. High strangeness, as they call it, like not an EMP, but like you know, and. And this is all, you know, for quote-unquote convenience sake or not. Like, your cell phone shuts off. Like, your car yeah. shuts off. Like, yeah. the, the electronics in the area just go blank. And I think some of that is happening. Like, that's clearly why the lights are flickering throughout the movie. But specifically, the radio station loses all power while the rest of the city is fine. Only after Everett plays the signal through the radio station. Um, which I took to be, like, a targeted... Um, shutdown of their communications. I don't... I mean, again, though, you don't know why, and you maybe don't need to know why. Um, yeah, we, we, we might be reading too much into this, but again, we have a podcast, so what else are we going to do? Yeah. No, I mean, I think they want you to think about it, but I think the answer is probably ultimately unimportant. It, it, it really, in the grand scheme of things, it really is, but, like, if we're going to break it down, I, I see the aliens shutting off the power of the radio station as like a, oh shit, they found us kind of deal. Yeah, maybe. That, that's kind of how I felt too. But then like they don't come after them, but maybe that's just because they were within city limits. Because once they get seen in the woods, they get abducted like right away. I, another little mystery, I thought this was probably the most com like creepy and strange part of the movie was the words that the old woman had written down. Because it's established that when she was a little girl, like, the country, like, the West was still being settled, which is amazing to think about, but she was an old lady in the 50s, so it makes sense. And an entire train full of people went missing. They chalked it up to a, like, Native American attack. And one woman came stumbling in. I forget, was she, like, supposed to be, like, covered in burns or anything? I don't remember. I don't believe so. Okay. Um, but basically, she was just very frazzled, and one night she overheard the girl speaking in an alien language in her sleep. And so the conclusion that the old woman comes to is that these aliens are beaming these words into our head as a way of, like, influencing our behavior every night when we sleep. And she claims that 
her baby's first words were those words, although she also says that the doctor dismissed it as baby babble. So she's basically insinuating that when babies babble, there's actual like alien language mixed in that's being like incepted into their brains. And then she talks about when her son was like four or five, she repeated the words to him and he like entered a trance and stared up at the sky until she stopped. And I think probably the creepiest moment in the movie I don't know if you agree, is when Everett plays that part of the tape when they're in the car and the, the, the person driving and the person in the passenger seat just enter that trance and look up at the ceiling and they're like veering off the road and stuff. I thought that was probably the freakiest part of the movie. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, like if the if, if the alien noises don't get you, like that that is, yeah, that that's your most like yeah. out and out like if you again, if you want to go back to calling it kind of like a pseudo horror movie, that's your biggest like horror moment, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a good example of how the slow burn was building to something. Um, I don't know if that justifies the extent of that slow burn, but like there is some payoff to it. But my point is, I, I think those words raised further questions because clearly not everybody's affected by them. Because the old woman seemingly wasn't, because she heard it as a child, and she not only, like, she she remembered it well enough to copy it down, so presumably she did not enter a trance, and then she did, she induced a trance in her child at one point, and then when she meets Everett and Faye, when they walk into the room, she is reading the words aloud off a note card. And when she finishes the final word, she looks up to lo- looks up at them and acts like she wasn't doing anything. And my assumption is she was testing them. Because Everett and Faye don't go into a trance when they hear those words. Um, and even when Everett plays the tape back, like, neither he or Faye are affected by it. Um... So, see, like, seemingly some people are being brainwashed and some people aren't. And again, I don't really think we're meant to believe there's an answer to that. But it's just another interesting, like, kind of dangling mystery. Yeah. Uh, if you really want to dig into it, I see it as, like, uh, like a vetting process almost from the aliens. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, we'll play this thing. If they get, if, if they just, if they just stop functioning, fuck them. But these guys aren't, so I think these are the guys we want. See, I kind of felt the opposite. I, I wondered if it was meant to be a way of basically turning people into cattle. Where like, okay, if we play this signal that, you know, incepts the words into them then they'll enter this trance and just stare up at the sky and, like, wait for us? Um, Like, I wondered if that was their way of, like, incapacitating people that they were targeting. But then the fact that Faye and Everett, who are not affected by it, are the ones who are abducted at the end of the movie, I think raises questions about that. And the fact of the matter is, it seems like they could take anybody they want, no matter the, the circumstance. Um... Yeah, unless it's, it's a, unless it's a gradual process and it's going to spread to the entire population eventually. I don't know. Uh, and we're, and we won't know. That, that no. that's the beauty of uh, of this kind of movie. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I thought was interesting was the old woman's motivations and story. I think were actually a little bit questionable because I think her story is pretty convincing until she starts rambling about how aliens are the reasons that people are self-destructive and why wars happen and why good people can do bad things and um you know stuff like that right but she is a woman who was impregnated when she was very young and then abandoned by the father and had to live with the scrutiny of being a single mother in a time when that was not acceptable. And then her child mysteriously disappears and she's being accused of murdering him. 
And then she lives through two world wars, which for the people at the time were like completely inexplicable. Like people were like, how could humanity hurt itself this way? So I almost wonder, and then she also has this delusion at the end where she says she wants to be taken up because she's convinced they still have her baby and she wants to be with him. Um, so I think you could infer that she's kind of projecting a lifetime of suffering onto these powers beyond her control and understanding. That like, yes, they probably did steal her child and she clearly had some real experience with them, but are they really to blame for war on earth? Are they to blame for her partner leaving her with a child? You know, like, or I'm, is this just the only defense mechanism she has? Like, I, I, is this I would preferable say, to imagining that people are horrible, you know? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that, that that's the more likely answer, mm-hmm. is that she's gone through this, this obvious trauma. At the very least, yeah. she was a single mother and her child disappeared. Quote-unquote disappeared. Yeah. Again, there's a bunch of bullshit. I mean... Uh, like, yeah. Brian just pulled up. So, it could be... That she's just a deeply disturbed woman, and or it could be this aliens. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that she's not just a disturbed woman, because the words that she gives them actually do work. But I, I do wonder because so much of what she like one of the interesting things about this movie is it kind of taps into the problem with conspiracy stories and alien abduction stories in the sense that the information they get comes from largely unreliable sources like billy is fairly like sturdy and reliable seemingly but he also is purely giving them like hearsay like years after the fact we as the audience take it what he says for granted because we know alien abduction stories um but then, like, this this woman, like, she's had some contact with aliens, but she's this kind of, like, conspiracy theorist who's just, like, ex- taken what she's experienced and just extrapolated this, like, sprawling conspiracy out of it that probably mostly came out of her own imagination. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I think that was probably the most interesting thing I noticed on my rewatch. I didn't really doubt her story the first time, but now I'm like, okay, she had a real story, and then she probably built all of this projection on top of it over the years. I think well, we should probably ba- probably bag on this movie a little bit, but first I just want to say um, another thing that I think helps this movie is like one of the very few benefits of the 20-minute exposition is that they, they don't just give you the like aesthetic of the 50s but they give you the feeling of like a friendly small town from like you know a better time a simpler time where everybody was friendly and everybody trusted each other yeah um like everybody knows each other by age and there's lots of great little moments where like things that nowadays would freak people out just were not freaking them out um, there's a moment where Faye and Everett are walking along and a stray dog just, like, casually walks next to them for a while and they glance at it and don't even think about it. Whereas, like, nowadays people are like, let's get out of here before this rabies dog gets us. There's a moment when they approach a an, uh, family in a car and the dad of the family asks Faye if she needs a light for her cigarette, which she's, like, 15 or 16, so it's like, oh my god, the 50s. Um, a lot of smoking in this film. Yes, there is, which, you know, is very true to form. Yeah, it really helps get us into the mood of the uh, yeah. of the piece. Mm-hmm. They're really portraying, uh, like, the quote-unquote, like, a simpler time, a better time, like you said. Yeah, but then at the same time, they have this fear hanging over their heads of the Ruskies, you know. I also appreciate they don't shy away from casual racism. Like, this is white, rural America in the late 50s, and, like... Yeah. Like... They acknowledge that one of the th- like one of the things that makes Billy's story believable is he is a black man, and he specifically tells them, "Well, they usually used black and Mexican soldiers for these covert, dangerous missions, uh, both because they wouldn't believe us and because we were more expendable um, in their eyes." And I like that Faye and Everett they don't 
really mind, but it clearly gives them both pause when they discover that he's black. And there's yeah. also a moment where Faye says some real racist shit about uh, Native Americans. Because, like, as because I notice in the movie, like, as soon as Billy admits that he's black, and even and, uh, Everett even mentioned it, he's like, "We've never had a black caller to the radio station." Right. And then, now that they mention it, it's it's interesting because after he mentions that, then Everett goes into, "Well, all right, sir, I'm going to need some kind of proof for this." Because otherwise, yes, you're just bullshitting. Yes, he does. Um, it, it, it's, it's a it's a it's a nice it's a very nice touch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they portray this peaceful, simpler time, but they also show you in relatively subtle ways that it is only a peaceful time for some people, and like the movie is not forgetting that. So I appreciated that. Now I've probably rambled enough. Dakota, do you want to bag on this movie? I feel I'm pretty sure you. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't like it as much as I did, probably. In parts, I'll. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll take my turn as, I'll, I'll we start I'll become the bad guy now and I'll make fun of the movie. Swag. Uh, <laughs> um, like we said before, this movie it takes so long to actually get going that. By the time it actually does get going, that almost feels like, what am I? What am I doing here, really? Because mm-hmm. even even with the incredibly slow burn and slow pace of the movie, uh, if you have any sort of knowledge about like UFOs, aliens, abductions, all that kind of stuff, you see all these beats coming. Yeah, you're not, you're definitely not wrong. One, one thing that I, I would definitely say to be critical of the movie, beyond just the insane amount of exposition, is, like, part of the reason it was so effective with me was because I watched it in total darkness with, like, no distractions. Um, and I do think if I had just had a light on or been multitasking or had, like, noise in the background from my family or something, I don't think it would have been nearly as effective. Um, oh, no, not at all. This... You really need to curate your experience for this. Yeah, which like, is not always a good sign. Like Brian was saying, you know, if I had had my phone with me, or if I had had a light on, or if I had just, like... If I hadn't devoted my full attention to the movie, I wouldn't have been nearly as receptive to it. Which sounds dumb yeah. when you say it out loud, but, like, you really need to, like, sit down by yourself or with someone who won't talk during a movie, which is why I had to watch by myself... Uh, in a dark room, like you yeah. really, you really need to get the feel for it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta be in the right mindset for something like this. Yeah, just like how you have to be in the I, right mindset for you know alien abduction stories in general. If you believe in things yeah. like that, I think like this is gonna sound weird, but I think this movie is very rewarding if you're willing to put in some work. Like you need to be prepared to wade through some boring parts. You need to be able to put yourself in a headspace you need to be able to accept like the the aesthetic and the kind of tone that the movie's going for um i think it helps that again this appeals to a very specific niche that dakota and i are very fond of and very starved for because like you can't make movies about alien abductions very well anymore and also i just think like creepy slow burn I, I have a thing for creepy slow burn horror stories, like light horror stories. Um, like there's a fantastic short story called The Willows by um, Algernon Blackwood, which is an amazing short story that made me want to fall asleep the first time I read it because it's so slow. But I, I think this movie is in a similar vein where like if you're prepared to buckle down and like kind of force your way through some of the less enjoyable parts there is a lot worth getting out of it yeah i'll be honest uh if 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 i didn't have the podcast i probably wouldn't have sat down to watch this beyond what i saw on half in the bag yeah but uh as slow and plotting and foot dragging as this movie can be like Brian said, if you if you really sit down and put the effort into curating your, your experience, you're going to have a much better time than if you just sat down and watched it like on your computer or something. 
Yeah. Yeah, I was I was a little sad because when we talked about it, we were both very excited to watch the movie. Again, because it appeals to that that little niche. And then you were like 20, 30 minutes into the movie and you were just like miserable, I could tell. And I think partly that was because you're tired, but I think it's partly because the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie are a slog. Um, and mercifully, it's only an hour and a half. Like, they knew they couldn't make it two hours long. And I'm glad they didn't try. Yeah. Usually when a film has to push for feature length, it's not worth watching. Yeah. And like I said, um, Fast of Night comes in at 89 minutes, so it's mm-hmm. like right there by feature length. Yeah. The only reason I'm as positive towards this film as I am is because A, again, it appeals to me in a very specific way. Uh, B, I do think there is pretty good payoff. Um, Not like shocking revolutionary payoff, but pretty good. Um, And C, although the exposition parts are very boring, I do understand like, or I can appreciate what they're doing and how well they characterize like the town. Um, But... Yeah, I mean, it is flawed. I don't want to pretend it's not flawed. Um, yeah. You know, something else that bothered me as, like, a negative was, like, they had that, like, framing device where it was, like, presented as, like, a Twilight Zone episode. Yes, yes. Paradox I wanted to get, I wanted to get into that. Okay, yeah, go for it. The whole movie is, is framed as a parody of the Twilight Zone. It, like Brian said, Paradox Theater. Yeah, uh, I don't and know it, if it's obvious, it a parody. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, an ob- it's, it's an obvious love, it's an homage, it's, it's an obvious it's an love homage, letter. Yeah. It's an yeah. obvious love letter to, like, War of the Worlds, uh, Twilight Zone, uh, shit well, like the, that. The guy who introduces it is clearly doing his best Rod Serling impression. Um, yeah. And so, they, they do the whole, like, tonight you will see things you can only see at paradox theater you know like they they do that very that same style of introduction yeah and honestly looking at the whole movie i don't think it needed that no i don't either i I think it 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 really takes away from the movie when you when you think about it it's because you know i forgot about that until you until like you brought it up and before about Mm -hmm. to record so i was watching I'm, i'm i'm invested in everything and then not only does it do in the beginning and the end the whole Paradox Theater, like, bookend. Uh-huh. Uh, the movie at one point, I think it's when Billy calls into the station. The movie kicks from, like, you know, you're actually an actual good picture to, like, whatever old black-and-white 50s TV yeah. approximation they could make in, like, Sony Vegas or whatever program, like, professionals use. Yeah, it's, it's like a grainy black-and-white old tv look it happens once when faye first gets into the the operator room um and she's saying the racist shit about native americans that 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 scene is one of it and so part of what confused me was just like what what are they trying to convey here like are they putting this filter on anytime something really old timey happens like is that why the casual racism is happening with this filter on but then they do it again later and i don't even remember what the context is but like there's like two or three times where they it, remind you that you're watching paradox theater yeah it and was, then in the in the last like third it just drops off altogether and you don't see it yeah it, it was the, the other the other one that pops it was just Faye running is, was that it? I think you're yep. right. Yeah, she was just running. Oh. She was running, uh, I think, to the library. Yeah, and well, it was... Um, to, to yeah, kinda, it I, was... Guess, I guess it's, it's a way to just kind of keep people's attention, is that it cuts out to like, this like 50s TV thing. Of, and they're trying to keep the audience invested in the movie by, by pulling them out of the movie, which is a weird and shitty thing to do, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I wondered if it was a way... Because... That scene had a lot of really fast edits because she doesn't just go straight to the library. Like first she like grabs a bucket and steals a bike and then she goes to the library and then she races all the way home. And there's all these really fast jarring cuts that don't totally fit with the style of the movie. And I was like, are they trying to excuse that sudden shift in editing style by framing it as a TV show again? 
Like, I, I didn't really understand what the purpose of that was. Neither uh, do I. And like I said, I think it takes away from the movie overall. Because it, it literally pulls you out of the movie to say, Hey guys, remember this is just a shitty Twilight Zone parody? The only uh, not parody, can... Twilight Zone homage, my bad. Yeah. The only thing I can think is it was just another way that they wanted to hammer home the aesthetic they were going for. But the thing is, I think they already nailed it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it was necessary. They um, did not need the Paradox Theater bullshit in there. I, I, no. I like it in theory as a framing device. In practice, yeah. it just pulls you out of the movie. Well, and it also sets you up to maybe think it's like a twisty story, and it's not really... Dakota and I are both big fans of Twilight Zone, and I think probably our next episode will be about Twilight Zone. That is the next um, one, the one after it. It, it. It's coming up real. It's coming up real soon. So at first I was like, "Oh, that's cute," and then on rewatch I was like, "So what was the fucking point of that? Nothing ever came of that." You also commented that there's a lot of running sequences in this movie. Uh, yeah, like, and I kind of get what they were going for. Andrew Patterson really tried to hammer home how small-town 50s America this was. Mm-hmm. Just with these long, sweeping, one-take shots. There's no real cuts between, between like, settings. We watch Faye run from the switchboard to her house, to the library, to a car that Everett stole, by the way. He ends up stealing yeah. the car. There are two different sequences in the movie where Faye starts running without thinking, and while she's, like, running at high speeds and panting and the, the editing is cutting really abruptly again, you keep cutting back to Everett, like, calmly, coolly driving after her to catch up to her. They do that twice, and I counted there are four similar running sequences in the whole movie. Um which I think most people would tell you is fat that could have been trimmed out of the final cut. Yes. Except then it wouldn't be a feature-length film, so... I, you know. And you know what? I think that's why I keep erroneously uh, calling this a parody of The Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Because between the Paradox Theater framing device and all these extended running shots, it feels like a short story that got stretched as far and thin as it could to hit feature life. Yeah. I also think that part of the reason critics also like it more than average audiences do is, like I said earlier, it, a lot of what's impressive about the movie is on a technical level. So for people who don't care about the ins and outs of filmmaking, and, like, even us, like, we're just, like, we're amateur. You know, like, we, we haven't studied film or anything. We haven't yeah, been, like, bare... Very bare-bones understanding of this stuff. Yeah, I've been um, on, like, three low-budget, like, movies. Yeah, and they're all pretty good. Um, yeah. But, uh... So, I, I, I get what they're getting at. I appreciate, like, the, the... Not filmography, the cinematography. And, like, the musical cues and the lighting. The lighting is very impressive, because you never see the camera once. Yeah. Especially, especially on this crazy, like, go-kart track bullshit they were pulling. You never see yeah. a shadow. So, technically, this movie is very impressive. I love it from a technical, uh, even a story standpoint. It's yeah. just that the execution leaves a little more to be desired, which I've already hammered well, on is the uh, the framing device, uh, just the uh, extended the extended scenes, uh, all sorts of uh, different stuff. Yeah. Well. I think part of the reason, like, part of what rubs me the wrong way a little bit about the movie being really stretched out is that it feels like, while the storytelling is mostly good, it feels like the movie is largely an excuse to show off filmmaking techniques. Like, most of the positive attention the movie has received has been about, like, editing and about that, uh, that go-kart sequence. I think there might even be two of them. Yeah, like, do it twice. A, a big part of that opening 20 minutes is to show, look how long we can sustain, a, like, a long take. Um, yeah, it, it's... And, yeah. It's, it's flashy, but it doesn't really serve the story, usually. 
Yeah, this is Andrew Patterson's first film, and it shows. Yeah, and, and, well, and, not, and not in a bad a way, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he started as, like, a commercial director, so, like, f- like flashiness might be a little bit in his in his training. Yeah. I will also say, I think the music is mostly good, but there's one or two moments where it really brought me out of the movie. Specifically, the big, long go-kart shot where the camera finally comes back around to Everett smoking outside of the the radio station. The music starts, like, really low-key and chill, and then it just gets, like, bigger and louder, and there's, like, trombones and shit mixed in. And it just felt very out of place relative to the rest of the score and the kind of movie it was, you know? Yeah, it got weird. There were a couple times where I thought, oh, the music really enhanced the scene. But for the most part, the movie doesn't really have much of a score, and I think it's better for it. Definitely. I think it feels a little more tense when it's just, like, silence in the background. Yeah, um, and and Andrew Patterson, like I said, this is his first movie. Uh, he funded it himself. Yes. And speaking from experience... Uh, on and by experience, I mean I, I was on for like one or two days as like an extra on these uh, these like local low budget films. Um, you you really have to work with what you have, and yeah. I think I, I and on that note, I think he nails it. I think Andrew Patterson yeah. absolutely nails what he needs to get done with what little yeah. budget he has. Yeah, I mean, we talked about needing to put the work in on this movie, and I think you can't deny that he put the work in. One of my favorite little bits of uh, trivia on here, on the Wikipedia page. Oh, here it is. So basically, the gymnasium that they filmed in, they had to remove the three-point lines on the basketball court because three-pointers did not exist in basketball yet in the 50s. So they had to remove it and replace it, uh, and that cost them about $20,000. Which is like, wow, man. Nobody would have noticed or cared if you had just left that three-point line in. Some, but some, you put someone in the would have work. noticed, but but yeah, they 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 really put in the work, and that's that's also something like that is why I think going back to the paradox theaters bullshit, they don't need that because the movie like and I've said this, I'm rambling now. The, it, the movie does a fantastic job at building a setting and staying in that setting. If that yes. makes sense. I mean, the movie is competently made by very skilled people. Um, I would also comment that I think the main cast is very good. Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz, I thought were both very good throughout. Uh, Jake Horowitz, there was a, like one point in my initial viewing when I was like, all right, you might be laying on the 50s disc jockey thing a little too thick. But for the most part, I liked them both a lot. Um, now, before we wrap this up, I thought maybe it would be fun to talk about the inspiration for this movie. The Wikipedia article uh, cites two influences, um, one of which I think you'll laugh at. It's called the Kecksburg UFO Incident. <laughs> no can't way. Believe, can't believe 4chan built a city. Yeah, it's spelled differently. <laughs> it's spelled differently, but it's the Kecksburg UFO Incident. Um, and then it's also loosely based on the Foss Lake disappearances. Now I was really excited to look into this stuff and discovered that most of it was pretty lame. The Kecksburg incident was basically people in, what did it say? It was like in, oh yeah, six states and some of Canada saw a fireball in the sky and it was in, I believe, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. So that's where you need to go, Dakota. And basically, everybody thought it was a UFO. People on site reported having seen a bell or acorn-shaped craft with, like, Egyptian hieroglyphs on it, um, which is probably where a lot of the ancient aliens theories came from. Um, But then there was all this huge thing about, like, you know, did they find anything or not? The site was cordoned off, like, immediately... Um, NASA initially claimed it was debris from a Soviet satellite, but they also claimed in the 90s that most of their documents had gone missing from that occasion. So, like, 
it sounds like it was probably a meteorite or a satellite or whatever. The thing that disappointed me is it seemed to have very little relevance to the actual story of the movie. Like, I don't understand how this could be an influence, really. Unless there's something in the actual eyewitness reports that lines up with the movie. The other one, the Foss Lake disappearances, was super boring. They found two cars with, I think, two or three people each in the bottom of, a, of the Foss Reservoir. And they were all total skeletons, and both deaths were ruled accidental, and that's that. The article literally mentions no, like, ufology surrounding it at all. Oh, that's lame. Yeah, so I don't know how that inspired this stuff. I wonder if maybe in an earlier draft of the script, them stealing the car was going to be more important. Like, maybe they would disappear and the car would still be there or whatever. I don't know. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the epic the epic uh, Kecksburg incident was <laughs> even MUFON, which is, for anybody who doesn't know, is like the ufology like hub. Yeah, it's the mutual like, UFO network. Yes. So they're all about this stuff. Even they claimed that it was a satellite that fell out of our fell out of orbit. So like Yeah, I I'm very curious about how these inspired or influenced the story. There's like if anything I would think Betty and Barney Hill or something of that effect would inspire the story. And I suppose in a roundabout way they did because they inspired all alien abduction stories, but Yeah. You know. Sounds like we gotta have Mr. Patterson on the podcast. Have him explain himself. Oh yeah, he'll definitely show up. He went under the pseudonym of James Montague for writing the script, and I don't know why. Because, like, he just used his regular name for the director credit. I so Probably to make it sound like there was more people working on the film than just him. Maybe. Because look know. at the I've been looking at the ID, the IMDb page the whole time we've been recording, and like, it, it's just him all across the all, all across the board, director, yeah, he, writer, editor, producer. Yeah, I'm sure. He, I'm Everything sure he had like acting. a fucking he had a little Easter egg in there somewhere. Um, have you seen his image, his picture? Yes, I have. He is. A he is a funky looking man. What'd you say? He is a caveman. <laughs> yeah, he super is. Oh, you're so right. Come on my podcast like, and defend yourself, caveman. He looks like a more well-groomed Alan Moore. <laughs> he does. Like he's 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 Alan Moore, but more in shape, and there's no crumbs in his beard. Yeah, for as messy as his beard is, it's very well kept. It's like a literal lion's mane. Yeah. We should probably just... We never actually did just give our general impressions of the movie. So, just, like, very succinctly, how do you how, how do you feel about this movie? Would you recommend it to other people? I Actually, I would recommend it, but only yeah. if you're willing, like we said, to put the effort into viewing it... I'm not going to say properly, but in a way that enhances the film. Yeah. This isn't a movie you're going to want to sit down and watch with a bunch of friends. This is something you need to you need to kind of view on your own, you know, in a dark room. Yeah. Really really let the aesthetic take hold of you. It's good, but I wouldn't recommend it as like a something you need to go out and watch. Yeah. It's certainly not a popcorn movie. Yeah, um I liked it. I like it a fair bit. I think I like it a little more than Dakota does. Ironically, though, I don't think I would recommend it to most people. I think, like, again, this only really worked for me because of my own specific interests when it comes to, like, science fiction and horror and stuff like that. Um, it is such a slow burn. And again, it, it did not drag as much on my second viewing as I expected it to, but I still think the vast majority of people would find it boring. But, uh, yeah, so overall I do like it, but I think the majority of people probably would not enjoy it. I think if you if you would enjoy it, you kind of know who you are. Um, and like Dakota said, just be prepared to, you know, put some effort in and kind of get yourself in the right headspace for it. Um, I'll probably never watch it again. I'll say that much. Oh, no. I, I watched it. I'm not, I'm not going to watch it again. 
Something I do want to mention, though, just right before I take us out of here, uh, this movie was filmed in, like, 2016, and it didn't get picked up by Amazon until, like, 2019. In that yeah. time, Andrew Patterson uh, has since made in, according to Wikipedia, as yet untitled film, which is a revenge thriller set in the honeybee industry. Oh. Which I which I have to say is just just interesting enough for me to want to to seek this out. <laughs> I need to know I need to know what the fuck he means by like kill Bill but with bees. Fascinating. It's the it's the long awaited bee movie sequel. You fucked my wife. That's the funniest joke in the episode. All right, uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dak Russellford. Brian is still a ghost. Brian, you got anything you want to add? Um, no. If you listen this far, thanks for indulging us. Yeah, if you listen at all, thanks for indulging us. I, I like it. I like it when the when the, the graph looks like people are listening. Um, like, comment, review, follow us, that stuff. This movie kind of sucked, but I would recommend it. Uh, have a nice night, everyone. <laughs> it should be.